This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. TFA is a boutique research, analysis, and consulting firm providing advisory services for clients worldwide. Martin is a very experienced analyst, and his focus is on the housing market in Australia, which is the subject of today's podcast. So, Martin, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thank you. Could you please tell us a little bit about digital finance analytics and the services it provides? Sure, yeah. So, we've been uh, running this particular business for nearly 10 years now. And uh, essentially, it has three elements. The first is we run primary research to uh, households and small and medium enterprise businesses in Australia. So, that's getting data about those particular businesses and households because my fundamental philosophy point is that we start from the point of view of the customer rather than a particular product set. And we ask questions about finances, loans, uh, you know, what they're planning to do. So it's quite rich, 140 fields for each survey, and we have 52,000 in each of the surveys running continually. Then we actually incorporate also other information from public sources, for example, from the Reserve Bank and from our regulators and other public sources, as well as the uh, bank's results. And we also get our hands on other data sources, for example, uh, private data from individual lenders and other organizations. We put all of that into our core market model, which is our key analytic tool. And that analytic tool allows us then to analyze what's going on in some degree of detail, uh, make some estimations about where things are going from a loan perspective, from a, a risk perspective, all those things. We also provide that information to a number of clients around the world by selling the data. And we also provide consulting and advisory services. So we work with individual organizations if they've got a particular business problem they want to solve. And then the other part of it is we also um, have a YouTube channel and uh, a blog, and we share some of our high-level findings more broadly because we think there's a very important role to educate and inform both the broader public and also policymakers here and around the world world with regard to things like where debt's heading and uh, some of the other risks that we see in the uh, economic uh, scenarios going forward at the moment. Brilliant. So uh, now Australia has been growing for almost 30 years in a row, which is impressive. We have spoken at the beginning of last year and you mentioned that house prices were about to come down. At the time we spoke, you expected house prices to come down in 2018, which they did, so it was spot on. But more importantly, you expect them to fall even more in 2019, when the number of houses that would arrive in the market would be way more than the actual demand could take on. Is it still your view? Yep. So I think that we have not seen the end of home price falls. And let's just be clear, if you go back five or six years, there was a significant run up in home prices. So for example, in Sydney and Melbourne, they actually increased 70% over the last four or five years and typical typical growth of between 10 and 17% per annum, depending on where you look and how you look. That was driven very strongly by excessively free and available credit. So interest rates were, were very, very low. The lending standards in the banks were very, very loose. And there was massive demand for property coming specifically from the investment sector. So people looking for property not to live in, but to effectively turn into an income stream that was letting the property out. Plus, we had international investors also piling in as well. So there was very, very strong demand uh, at a time when interest rates 
rates were very low, and that drew home prices up to a very strong peak. But I was already seeing the demand tailing off because internationally, some of those Chinese investors, which is a very big source of investment, found it harder to bring money out from China. We also saw that as home prices started to ease away because banks were being forced to tighten their lending standards, which meant that they couldn't lend as much to people. So their borrowing power went down. People couldn't get the loans they wanted. So therefore, suddenly the flow of credit started to ease and as the flow of credit started to ease, so home prices started to level off and are now falling. And, and the critical thing to understand is that it's not really about supply and demand of property so much as credit. It's the credit impulse which drives where home prices go. And so our forward modelling suggests that credit will continue to effectively be more rationed now than it was, even with low interest rates, simply because the underwriting standards are now considerably tighter. And as a result of that, we are expecting home prices to slide another 10 or 15 percent in 2019. Our peak to trough mid-case scenario is a fall of between 20 and 30 percent in Sydney and Melbourne. So still up on that 70 percent I mentioned before, but it could drop considerably more than that if, for example, we get another international crisis and I could list Brexit or I could list uh, what's happening in China or even in the US as potential other risk factors, which could then lift it from 30 percent to 40 to 45 percent. Interesting. We're going to be talking about the risks uh, later on, but uh, is bank lending still growing? And and what about housing lending? Yep. So what's interesting is that the uh, credit impulse, in other words, the rate of change of credit availability has continued to slow. But the latest figures from the Reserve Bank shows that overall credit for housing of all types is just around 5% on an annualized basis. It was previously up to 15% if you go back a year, 18 months ago. But within that, lending for unoccupied housing is still at about 6.8% annualized, but investment property lending is down to under 1%. So it's really the investment sector that's disappeared. And, and just to give your listeners a bit of a sense of that, the investment sector at one stage was more than half of all new loans being written. So it's massive. And even now, more than one third of all loans, mortgages on books are for investment purposes, which is massively high on an international basis. But the rate of growth is slowing, but it's still increasing. Interesting. And uh, well, I'm not sure whether you agree with me and uh, you believe there's a bubble in the property market down under. But here comes an important question. Is the amount that the banks are lending now sufficient to keep this bubble going? Because uh, the credit has slowed, but still growing. And uh, in your opinion, what could derail this fantastic boom in the property market? Yeah, so I don't think that we will see credit increasing. So the rate of growth is slowing, and that means that effectively we forward projections are that uh, credit growth will still be there, but very, very small. A lot of that is driven by refinancing, uh, which is sort of one of the in inherent factors within, within the market. But the critical thing to understand is that we've got many households now who are highly leveraged into property with very large mortgages in an environment where their costs of living are continuing to rise. Mortgage rates are beginning to rise as well now, thanks to the international funding pressures, but incomes aren't. So there's a bit of a pincer movement going on with housing effectively costing ever more of a household's income. As a result of that, more and more households are only getting by by putting more on credit cards or raiding their savings. And as a result of that, there is a, a broader economic consequence, which means they spend less at the shops and household consumption, which actually drove about half of uh, Australia's GDP over the last year, is sliding. 
And it's the household consumption uh, sliding, which is the critical first factor. The second factor is that because demand is now less strong for new property, there are less new builds going on than previously. The rate of home approvals is way down. And that means that we've got more of the construction sector now effectively not working. And so we see that as a dampening factor. So that's the second one. And the third one is that we're seeing small rises in defaults and bad debts from the banks even now. And that means that we we know that we're going to have more trouble ahead, despite low unemployment, uh, especially if we would start to see unemployment begin to rise rather than fall, as it has been doing recently. So you put all that into the model, and essentially the likely consequence is that growth will be lower. In fact, the Reserve Bank came out today with their most recent statement on monetary policy, and has said that this year will be about 3%, next year will be lower than 3%, and they've had to calibrate their uh, growth expectations down simply because of some of the factors I've been talking about. Interesting. And, well, I believe the timing of our conversation is great because on the 1st of February, the Banking Royal Commission report was sent to the Government General, and the final report and the government's response were made public on the 4th of February. Now, could you help us understand the main points of this report and the implications for the housing market? Sure. Yes, it was 900 page report. Um, the process was the uh, inquiry was uh, bounced by the, effectively the opposition and the backbench forced the government to put the inquiry in place. The inquiry terms of reference was carefully crafted to make it ineffective as best possible. But they actually um, had 69 days of hearings where the banks and other financial institutions were forced to disclose all of their dirty washing in public, especially, especially the way that they handled their customers, the way that they sold products uh, poorly. So we saw people with being given loans they should never have got in the first place, uh, financial services products that were actually inappropriate, people were being charged fees for debt services despite the fact they were debt, all those sorts of things. As a result of that, the, the final report was published and frankly, it was a bit of a, um, what shall I say, some, it wasn't as powerful as we expected. So we expected some recommendations about structural reform, but nevertheless, they underscored three things. Firstly, that the culture in our financial system here, which was driven by greed, needs to change. It needs to put customers back in the center of things, firstly. Secondly, that the tightening of lending standards that had happened over the last 18 months or so, I mentioned that a little while ago in terms of uh, lower rates of uh, credit growth, those are appropriate and won't be reversed anytime soon. And thirdly, there will be additional legal proceedings taken against a number of these large organizations, which will keep them focused on trying to make sure that their businesses are more aligned to their customers. So it really does mark a very important sea change in the way that financial services organizations think about things. Because up until now, they've been driven fundamentally by only shareholder returns and customers were seen as cannon fodder. But now they have a very important obligation around meeting customers' needs appropriately. And that's going to have huge cultural impact and change inside the banks. And there's also a $6 billion bill for customer remediation and fixing up the system over the, uh, over the next two or three years. And that's going to hit overall performance of pretty much every organization in the finance sector, which makes up more than one third of the whole of the Australian stock exchange and about half of dividends. So it's a big deal. Sure. Now, uh, from the people who are buying houses now, what percentage is using interest-only mortgages? Because the Reserve Bank of Australia was going to curb this, right? And, and some of the interest-only mortgages that were issued a couple of years ago were not going to be renewed, right? Correct. So interest-only loans was something that was very big 
big business here. So the idea was by getting an interest-only loan, you could actually get a bigger loan. And people wanted to get a bigger loan because home prices were rising so fast. And if you were a property investor, you actually get um, tax breaks from the fact that uh, on the interest that you pay. So you want basically to have as big a loan as you can so you get the biggest tax break you can. And so at one stage, more than 40% of all loans that were being written by the banks were interest-only loans. But the problem is there was no plans to repay the capital on those loans. So people were assuming they could just go on rolling and rolling and rolling those interest-only loans into the future. But now the regulators have come in and said, no, that's not appropriate. Uh, You've got to actually uh, have a plan to repay the loan. And essentially, there's about, um, usually the next two or three years, about $120 billion of loans coming up for re-roll. And about one-third of those will not actually pass muster now under the new tighter standards. So those will actually go to principal and interest loans, which basically means your monthly repayments got well, roughly 40%. Another third will not be able to get any sort of loans at all. They'll be forced to sell. So it really is going to be a major shakeup from the interest-only sector. And that's one of the reasons why the supply of property coming onto the market for sale has gone up, because essentially now people have no option. And of course, because there's no capital growth as well, investors are saying, well, maybe it's time to get out. So it's a big impact. It's, it's our equivalent, I think, of the, um, the US. Uh, rate reset loans over there post you know post around the GFC which caused the GFC this could be as big here and could have similar consequences I think okay so your view on the on the property market could be even worse I mean it can be a, a, the house prices can come down even more than the 40% you you expect right or that will be your your worst case scenario yeah so I run a different a series of different scenarios right so because there are so many variables and you know some of those are international variables and some of those are are local variables but you could easily see a scenario where the fact it would be that prices could drop considerably more than the 40%, right? So I, I, I say my, my sort of, you know, worst case scenario in an international crisis could be 40% plus. And it's equivalent to what happened in Ireland, um, you know, back a, back a decade ago. But you could also see a worst case scenario where effectively the RBA, the Reserve Bank here, doesn't actually stimulate the economy and doesn't do quantitative easing. That was sort of one of the assumptions in my 40% scenario. And if it did that, if it didn't do that, you could see even bigger drops. So yeah, the home price um, downside is, is quite significant and probably looking even more significant than previously. And remember what I said, prices had risen 70% over the last four or five years. So you could see conceivably most of that being clawed back in the worst case scenario. So I think we're in for a very bumpy ride. And unlike some commentators who think it's a short little hiccup and then going to be accelerating again, my own view is this is a long-term issue. It's probably going to be a five to 10-year problem that we have here. And it's going to be enough to uh, take prices back a long, long way from where they currently are. Quite interesting. And I believe the number of households with negative equities close to 10%, which is an astounding number. So the Reserve Bank of Australia will not be able to raise interest rates without causing damage to the sector. Would you agree with me? And do you believe the next move for the RBA is to cut rates instead of raising? Yeah, so there's no doubt in my mind that um, the next rate cut, sorry, the rate move from the RBA will be down. They've pretty much changed their view now, in fact, this week, because previously they were saying strongly the next rate move will be up. Now they're saying it's 50-50 up or down. But yeah, growth is slowing. The economy is not doing as well as it 
perhaps should, the next rate move will be down. Probably not for a few months, but it will be down. But the negative equity thing is is a function of home prices sliding, right? And a lot of people took loans out in the last 18 months or two years right at the top of the market. A lot of first-time buyers were given first owner grants or bribes, really, frankly, to get into the market. And probably investors were also buying in, hoping to get more capital growth. So we've had a very large number of people coming right at the top. And now prices in some suburbs are already down 20 to 25%, which is more than enough to completely wipe out any deposit that they put in when they bought the property. So around 10% of households are in negative equity on my numbers. But what's interesting is there are large numbers of those in certain areas, for example, in Western Sydney, which is perhaps an area where there's been massive growth, massive overdevelopment, massive home price growth until quite recently. Now that's all reversing. So we're seeing this negative equity spill over into just a small number of suburbs. That's where I think some of the most critical risks will be ahead. And another reason why I think the Reserve Bank just won't be able to lift rates. They'll have to cut rates. Okay. Okay. And Victoria and New South Wales are big markets in Australia. So uh, can I say that the bubble is in these markets and the rest of the country could be okay? Or do you think it's all over Australia? Well, it's not the same, of course. Yes, you're right. So 6% of um, property ownership is in two states, so Victoria and New South Wales. And that's where they've had the massive run-ups in home prices. Um, if you look at other markets, for example, Perth, they were booming a decade ago when the mining boom was on, but then went sideways for five or six years, and they're 27% to 28% down from their peaks. Same as in um, um, Darwin, really, in some areas. Um, not uniformly, but there's many areas where it's as bad as that. Whereas in Hobart or Adelaide, which are small markets, or Canberra, um, there's been a little bit of positive growth. So there are differences in the different markets. But frankly, it all pales into a significance when you look back to Sydney and Melbourne, because they are the main markets, and they will determine the future shape of the economy here. So we look predominantly at those two markets. Sure. And one of the risks I would like to point out is the construction risk, because there's almost unlimited demand. Uh, builders might not be taking too much care about houses they are building. They only want to speed up the process so they can cash in. We saw on Christmas Day the troubles with the Yopo Tower and many other reports of houses here and there with problems. You actually said something very harsh in 60 Minutes, that many properties that were built recently can turn into slums in 20 or 30 years. Do you still think it can happen? Yep. So the problem we've had is that we've had an outsourcing of uh, building certification to the private sector some years back, which basically means that you are trusting the industry to police itself. And as you say, there's been a very strong uh, drive to build quickly, often with um, low-grade um, products manufactured offshore and brought into Australia, and often with labor that's also brought into Australia. So the standards are a real problem. And Opal Tower is, if you like, an iconic example, very tall tower out in the Olympic Park, but with massive problems uh, with big cracks appearing and probably lots of remedial work to be done if it can be saved. But there are other examples in other geographies too. And we also have a lot of flammable um, cladding on the outside of buildings as well that's been uh, put up quite recently. And so these new build high-rise apartments, which have been thrown up quickly for speculative purposes, for investors very quickly and frankly, I don't think up to standard, are the risk areas. And that's why I said on 60 Minutes that I do think we've got a real risk here. Um, we already know that valuers have taken about 17 to 20% off the typical value of those properties, you know, even now. And there's probably more downside risk ahead as well. So this is a really big and important factor. The other point to make is that um, the number of vacant properties in Australia is a, close to a million or one-tenth of the total number of properties 
properties available in Australia. And we know that we have about 200,000 new units coming on stream this year. So there's a huge oversupply of property at a time when, as we've explained, demand is coming away, when interest rates are rising a little and when mortgage lending is you know, tighter than before. What that means is that some of those constructors now aren't able to finish the buildings. So the other thing I expect to see is half-finished buildings where effectively they're never completed. And that's the other factor to bear in mind when you think about um, the, the stock of property that we've got and the, uh, the poor construction standards. Somebody else has got to pick that up and perhaps finish it later. But then, of course, there's the question of, well, where does obligations lie with regard to quality and finishes and those sorts of things? It's a big deal. Interesting. And well, we, we've spoken about a few of the risks in the market now, but in your opinion, what are the risks that people are not paying attention to now and could derail this bull market? <laughs> well, I think that we've got to think internationally. So I'm very concerned about the economic signals coming out of China at the moment, because obviously Australia is intrinsically connected to China through the sale of resources in particular. And if the demand for resources uh, were to come off simply because China effectively uh, slows, uh, that would be a very significant negative impact on the whole of the economy and not least the um, the property sector. That's the first risk. The second risk relates to the um, funding costs. So if you look at the international funding costs compared to Australia, banks here are having to pay considerably more for international funds to be able to actually fund their books, particularly their mortgages. Uh, and they're sitting on a lot of margin at the moment, which they're not able to pass on to customers at this stage. As funding costs internationally continue to rise, look at LIBOR, for example, um, the chances are that they're going to have to pass on those costs into households who are relatively unable to cope with them. So I think that's a, a critical risk. And then the third risk is the political risk. So we've got an election in a couple of months' time or May, perhaps. Uh, and if the Labour Party were to get in, one of the things they're talking about is abolishing this negative gearing, those tax breaks I mentioned earlier on. And those could potentially also have a significant impact on the overall market as well. So I can give you tons of risks and tons of issues why I think that there are more downside trajectories uh, likely than upside, I can give you almost none as to why there would be a home price recovery or why the Australian economy would start booming again. I think that we are close to the end of our 27-year run. Interesting. Do you expect a recession in Australia over the next few months? And if yes, how to play the sector? Because many people have been burnt by shorting the banks. Yeah. Well, of course, and the banks are up 5% this week, thanks to the uh, the, the Royal Commission <laughs> yeah. results. Mind you, they're, they're still significantly down on where they were 18 months ago. So it depends where you came into the market and when you shorted, I suppose. Um, the question to ask yourself, is it likely that the bank's profitability is going to be enhanced or degraded by what's happening? And I think it's going to be degraded. So uh, my own view is there's more downside risk than upside risk to the banks. Um, the sorts of arguments that go like this, that you, it's hard to uh, short the property sector directly. So a lot of people see the banks as a proxy for the property sector um, because the banks are relatively easy tradable and you, you can get options and things. So that's why the banks are very much in the sort of middle of people's focus at the moment. Um, the other point to make there, though, is that we are quite reliant um, on you know, a small number of industries, particularly the resource sector and what happens there. And that means we're very exposed to exchange rate movements and to international demand. So there are hedging things to think about there with regard to the way that the resource sector works and particularly you know, the international. And a lot of people are effectively assuming that the US dollar vis-a-vis -vis the Australian dollar will be such that the Aussie will move from around 70 where it is now to 60. So there's a, you know, a significant potential move there if that's true. 
And so some people are also hedging on the currency side um, as well. So I think there are some interesting opportunities, but it's not all that clear cut for the reasons that I've explained. And my own expectation is the Reserve Bank will move into QE mode later and will be effectively uh, printing money. There will be a recession. It won't be in 18 months or so. Um, my best analogy is we are in 2006, like the US was in 2006. If you think of when the GFC hit, it was at 2007, 2008. That's my sort of feeling as that where we are. So this is not going to happen in a few months. This is 18 months or so, but it's going to play out, I think, quite similarly to the GFC down here. I think there will be a recession. I think unemployment will start to rise. I think interest rates will be cut. We might even go into um, you know, zero bounds. And I think we're going to have a tricky five years or so. Interesting. Martin, it was great to talk to you again. Once more, thank you for coming to this program and sharing your views with us. Very great to talk to you. And uh, I always love talking about this stuff. So uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it. <laughs> for sure they will. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Thank you.